Welcome to the Stuttgart Missional Community Church Sermon Podcast. SMCC is a multicultural church serving the English-speaking community in Stuttgart, Germany. For more information or to contact us, visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net. Today is a tough message, and I had writer's block all week. Uh, you know, and my method for sermon preparation is to read, of course, read the Bible, read the text and, and the surrounding texts around it and, and uh, read uh, cross-references and study all week and read maybe chapters of books or reference books I have read. And I just kind of absorb, absorb, absorb. And then I sit down on Thursday or Friday and I just write. And I want to tell you, I sat down on Thursday and I had nothing. I mean, nothing. And I sat down on Friday and I had nothing. And uh, it's not because the Lord wasn't speaking to me. It wasn't because I didn't feel like the Lord had something for us. But uh, the subject we're talking about today, God and injustice, the why God moments of life, is a very difficult subject to tackle. And uh, it, it's, it, it just it, it touches a lot of nerves in our hearts. And uh, so today... Uh, it's an encouraging message. It's an encouraging message to Habakkuk, but Habakkuk starts out a lot like each one of us with a lot of questions why God seems silent and absent in very difficult times in our lives. Nick Ripkin, a Baptist missionary who served in Somalia and other parts of Africa, wrote in his book, The Insanity of God. To me, the most startling thing Jesus ever said was when he assigned his followers the task of going out in pairs to share the good news with lost people. He said that he was sending them out as, quote, sheep among wolves. Still, he expected them to prevail. In the history of the world, no sheep has ever won a fight with a wolf. The very idea is insane. Jesus sends us out as sheep among wolves. And wolves are looking for dinner. They're looking to devour. They're looking to kill the sheep. And Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And Nick Ripkin says, the very idea of that, the very proposal of that is insane. Nick Ripkin saw unbelievable things. I highly recommend his book, The Insanity of God. As he was working in Somalia, he talks about you know, he was there during Black Hawk Down. He was there during that time of Somalian history. And as he was, uh, you know, he was very unsafe and a lot of unrest. And he was going to minister to people who were affected by this. And, and uh, he's walking on the dirt road. And as he passes, he sees a woman nursing her baby under a tree. And he walks and he does his ministry wherever he's headed. And on his way back, he sees the same woman nursing her baby under a tree and he goes up and to see and check on her and she's she's passed away the baby's still uh on her breast and just the just the the absolute horrible things that he saw and witnessed motivated him to write this book the insanity of god but through this book you see this great overarching mission of God taking place, even in places like Somalia, North Korea, and China, these places that he subsequently visits where the church is persecuted and injustice is just running rampant. How does the church make sense of this? What do we do when God doesn't make sense? 
when we don't have the answers and God seems silent a million miles away, I want you to know your pastor's been there. I don't have some special direct line to God in situations like that, you know. And uh, there are times where God seems distant in my life, in my wife's life, in all of our lives. What do we do when we're surrounded by wolves and there doesn't seem a way to escape? When we feel like we're doing everything we can, but our best just isn't good enough. Has anybody ever felt like that? We're doing everything we can, but it just doesn't seem like enough. We can't find our way out of the tunnel. And as we open up the book of Habakkuk, we see that this prophet was in the same situation. He was in a situation where he couldn't see how God could possibly be working through his circumstances. However, God assures him that he has authority over everything, which allows his people to live in faith and in joy. Turn with me to Habakkuk 1, verses 2 through 4. It says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And will you not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me to see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, and the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk finds himself in a culture and a society where justice is perverted, where wickedness seems to triumph over righteousness time and time again. The unfairness of it all is just boggling his mind, and his heart for people and for God has overwhelmed him to where he is crying out to God. Church, this term crying out, we see it throughout the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. This is an earnestness that, that many of us in our prayer lives, never touch. This desperation of crying out to God. It's not a, you know, le- you know bless me before I eat or bless me before I sleep. This is a, a heart that is absolutely rended for God and, 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 and for his people. And, and that is where Habakkuk is. He is a prophet motivated to see revival come to Israel. And here he is crying out as Israel is surrounded by evil people and, and evil within themselves. Habakkuk's prayer is, God, how long will you stand by? How long will you allow this to happen? See, Habakkuk knew Josiah and who we spoke of last week, a righteous king, a king who brought revival to his people. And, and now it's Josiah's, not his first son. His first son lasted about three weeks, I think, or maybe three months. And now it's his second son who is the king, Jehoiakim. And he's an evil king, and he's doing wrong things. And he's leading God's people astray. And Habakkuk's like, God, how long will you put up with this? How long will you turn a blind eye to our peril? How long before you help? How long do we have to suffer? How many times do I have to pray? How many times do I have to cry out? Has anybody ever been there? How many times, God? How many, how many times will I have to pray for my wife? How many times will I have to pray for my, 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 my children who have gone astray? How many times will I have to pray for my sick parents, my unsaved loved ones? Habakkuk could not see God's redemptive purpose in what God was doing. He could not see God working through the sin and justice and violence and oppression of God's people that were all around him and all the unrighteous nations that seemed to surround them. 
But just because Habakkuk couldn't see God's redemptive purpose doesn't mean that God didn't have a redemptive purpose. Church, we need to remember this. When God seems a million miles away, when our circumstances seem overwhelming, just because we can't see God moving doesn't mean God's not moving. See, the absence and the distance sometimes creates the illusion that God is absent. But we know that the promises of God are always true. And Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But there's another promise Jesus made. In this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Does that sound peaceful? No. Does that sound happy? No. We will have trouble. But he says he will never leave us or forsake us. And when we can't see him... That's where faith is exercised. That's where we have to trust. That's where we have to say, I stand on the promise of God that he will never leave me or forsake me. I stand on the promise of God that I am not an orphan, but that God is my king and my father. Amen. See, there's nothing wrong with Habakkuk wrestling with these, wrestling with these questions. You know, these questions of, Where are you, God? Why are you doing these things? Notice as we continue here that God is not rebuking Habakkuk's questions, but he answers them because there's no sin in asking why God. How many of your children have ever asked you why? If they've been three, they've asked you about a bazillion times. Why, 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 why? It just continues and goes on and on and on. Now, why was always a question that even in my house we could ask, but what was not a question we could ask? If we said what, uh, you know, that was a totally different story. But here, Habakkuk's not asking what, he's asking why. Why, God? Why is this allowed to happen? And in these why moments, we must remember that God is at work for good. And his people are precious to him. The heart of Habakkuk's why. Do I have, we have it up here? Yeah. The heart of his why was for God's people and for God. That's important to remember. His heart was in the right place. He was asking from the right position, right? Why? Why, why are your people made to suffer? God, why do you seem absent? He's not angry with God. He's not cursing God. I've heard stories of Christians sometimes telling me that they don't curse God per se, but that they, they get angry with God in prayer and maybe even yell at God or, or whatever, and that they enjoy the, you know, this. I, I would never think of yelling at my Heavenly Father, you know, or dictating to Him what to do, for sure. But I, we, we are commanded to come as children, Right, and what? How do children come? They ask why because they have a genuine, innocent curiosity to know why the sky is blue, right? To know why you do this or you do that, and they're learning and they're being formed. And when we ask that we might more perfectly serve God, that's a good reason to ask. That we might just under, you know, have a glimpse of understanding or more closely follow Jesus. When we ask why from this position, this is the right position to ask from. Okay, the wrong position, many parents will testify, is is uh, the why. Like, why do you have to clean your room? Right. Like it's because they don't want to do it. Right. It's because they don't want to do it. So why? Why do I have to clean it? It'll just get dirty again. Why? 
Well, because I said so, right? Isn't that what you usually say? And sometimes that's what God says too, because I said so. So the heart of why is important, but it's also the head of trust. We make a lot in our movement and in other Pentecostal movements of a heart response to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, we make a lot of the salvation moment. We make a lot of the moment of transformation. But I want, to, I want you to know that God in, intends to engage not only our heart, but our head as well. And our head is where we choose to love. Our, cho- our head is where we choose to exercise faith. Our head is where we choose to make Jesus Lord and King of our lives. The heart responds, and it's definitely both, church. We need to have a balanced approach to God. We need to approach God with our head and with our heart, both. Look with me to Habakkuk 1, 5, and 6, and then we'll continue on to 12 and 13, and then we'll skip ahead to 2 and 1. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I... This is God speaking and doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Look and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Go down to verse 12. Are you not from everlasting Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One. This is Habakkuk speaking now. This whole book is kind of a prayer journal, the back and forth between Habakkuk and God. We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he See, Habakkuk has found himself in the unfortunate position of praying and not liking God's answer. Because God says, I will punish the iniquity of Israel. I will send my hand of redemptive judgment upon them. Redemptive judgment is God bringing his correction to Israel through punishment, okay? Many of you have engaged in this as well, right? And so, you know, he's, he's punishing them for their, for their good, And he's going to send this wicked, wicked people to exercise judgment. Habakkuk goes on to say in verse 2 and 1, I will take my stand at my watch post, and I will station myself on the tower. I will look out and see what he will say to me and and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So here's Habakkuk. He prays that God would do something. God does something. Habakkuk doesn't like it. He complains again. I want to tell you that your prayer closet, the place where you pray, is safe with God. It's safe. And when God answers in a way that adds further confusion, I want to tell you that you can continue to question that. You can continue to say, God, God, what? What? I asked that you would save my loved one, but instead you sent cancer upon him. What? What? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Is it possible that God may be bringing people to the end of themselves? Is it possible that he may be just so smiting people or so punishing people that they might only see, look up and see God? Is that possible? How many of you came to Jesus that way? 
That's how I came to Jesus. I was at the absolute end of myself. There was nowhere else to look. Now, I know that's not everybody's testimony, but that's a testimony not only uh, of God's greatness, but my stubbornness, pride, and arrogance that God had to bring. Some of you are much wiser than me. Most of you are. You didn't have to come all the way to the bottom before you had to look up and see Jesus. I did. And here, a great tragedy is going to come upon Israel. Lots of people are going to die. Lots of people are going to be taken as slaves. The Israel will be plundered. But God's redemptive purpose is still at work because he is interested in, not in the short term, but the long term. He's interested in salvation. He's interested in saving people. And Habakkuk's response here in 2 and 1 is exactly how we should respond. He, he says, I'm going to stand at my watch post and I'm going to station myself on the tower. I'm going to see what God's going to say. He's going to go out and he's going to continue praying. He's going to continue looking for God to move. He's going to continue looking for opportunity. He's not going to walk away and just say, God's out of it. God doesn't care. He's not going to do that. He's going to keep looking for opportunity. He's going to keep looking for God to speak. And, and when God speaks, he's going to respond. How many of you can ever respond? I mean, you don't have to raise your hands, but you know we, can, we probably all can echo this this, this confusion of Habakkuk. We pray, and you know what's so often the truth is that we pray with God's answer in our minds. You know, we pray and we ask God for exactly how to do something. And if he doesn't do it that way, we feel like he didn't answer. The truth is God answers how he sees fit. His ways are higher than your ways. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than yours and higher than mine. He operates on a completely different plane, okay? He sees eternity past, and he sees eternity future. Do you understand that? that? That it may not make sense in the moment, but that doesn't mean that God's not God. It doesn't mean that he's not on the throne. But I want you to know that you are not alone in your confusion. We have all been caught up in this confusion. We have all had these why God moments when God seems to operate in an unjust way where he's just totally absent. But notice what Habakkuk never does. He never curses God. He never curses him. He never gives orders to God. Now, I've heard prayers like this before God uh, that people pray too. You know, God, in the name of Jesus, do this. I think we've forgotten our place. Amen? Now, there are people who would advocate for this type of prayer. I, 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 I do not. We come to God from a submissive place. He is our God and our King. How many of you would walk into the four stars office and, 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 and presuppose to give him an order? Anybody? Would anybody give their commanding general an order? No, why would you do that? You come, and I've seen, I've seen the way some of you act around these flag officers. It's like, what, what? Who is this guy? I mean, you're so humble, right? And you come like, oh, my God. You have everything prepared. Every little detail is, everything is done, right? You know these guys, they have people who cook for them and clean for them, enlisted people? Like, that's crazy. That's just a little cray. Like, you can't do your own laundry anymore? What's your problem? But anyway... We, we, we come from a point of submission, right? And that's how we should come to God. Why would, we, why would we think 
for an instant that we know more about our situation than God does. Do you know how foolish that is? To say, God, I know more about everything surrounding this situation than you do, so let me tell you how to do your job. When I pray for healing for somebody, I pray God's will be done. I believe God can heal supernaturally. Okay, that's not enough amens. I believe God can heal supernaturally. I believe God uses medicine. But I'm not going to tell him, God, use the doctors, use the nurses, or God, heal supernaturally. You know, it's enough for me to trust him that he knows what he's doing. God, bring healing to this person's life. Lord, bring a miracle to this person's life. I'm not going to tell him how to do it. I'm just going to trust him for it. I'm just going to thank him that there is healing in the blood of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to thank him. I'm going to give him praise for that. I'm not going to tell him what to do. And see, we might think, God, why? God doesn't work through injustice. God, he doesn't have a purpose in it. He, we see it here. God has redemptive purpose in working here. We see it in the life of Daniel, right? We see it in the, the three children in the fiery furnace. But most of all, we see it in, in Jesus, God working through injustice. I want to tell you that whatever you're suffering, whatever injustice has come upon your life, whatever is grieving your heart right now, is nothing compared to the injustice inflicted upon Jesus Christ who died in an innocent man, a sinner's death in your place. It is the biggest waste of a human life in the history of mankind. And, and Jesus willfully went to the cross. You talk about injustice. He suffered the greatest injustice for God's biggest redemptive purpose in history. Amen. So what we're seeing is that God does work through the injustices of our lives. When we can't see it, it doesn't mean God is not working. Be encouraged today. I know many are in this place, this place where they just can't see how God is working. He is working. Be of good courage. God is working through your situation. It may be difficult in the moment, but God will be glorified. And through these times in our lives, the worst thing we can do is walk away from God. The worst thing we can do is walk away from our community of faith. People might say, well, you know, I've seen so many people be, receive injustice from the church. Like, that's really sad. I hate to hear that. And I have offended people. I know that's really hard to believe, but it's true. I have hurt people's feelings, and I have offended people. The wrong thing to do is walk away from the faith. The wrong thing to do is walk away from a church. Now, if a church is teaching on biblically, and there's major uh, theological problems in the church, that's a whole other story. But what I'm talking about is a, one sinner offending another. That is not a good reason to leave a church. The thing to do is work through it. If we're family and we really believe that, then we wouldn't abandon our family the first sign of trouble. You know, my brother and I have gone through some tough times in our lives, but we're still brothers and uh, we haven't abandoned one another. And, and church, if you've been hurt and you've been the victim of injustice in the church, well, you're here today. So hopefully you found healing in that. But you probably know some people who have not. Well, you know, I was in a church and they did this to me or this happened to me or that happened to me. I mean, I've said this before, but, you know, I've had a bad hamburger at McDonald's, but I still go back, obviously. You know. 
you have a bad experience in church, it doesn't make all churches bad. Yeah, churches are full of sinners. Remember that, right? Churches are full of people who will do things that are not godly. That happens. So lastly, what's this point to? What do these two what does the heart of why and the head of trust, what does it lead to? It leads to a life of faith. It leads to a life of faith. I would I would put it to you that our faith is most visible in these tough times, in the why God moments of our life. It doesn't take a whole lot of faith to get every single promotion, to be blessed, to get every raise, to be doing great. You know, it doesn't, you don't need to lean on God in those times. It's not, those aren't why God moments. Has anybody ever prayed, God, why did I get this raise? God, why do you keep blessing me with more finances? Or, you know, why am I in such good health, God? Does anybody ever pray those prayers? Maybe some of you do. I don't know. There's some sick puppies out there. But, you know, you think, no, it's in our times of desperation. When our kids are sick. When our family is suffering. These are the times where we pray. This is the time where our faith is demonstrated. I think of the tragedy of 9-11. Happy Veterans Day, by the way, to all of our veterans. But I think about 9-11. I think about one of the biggest tragedies in you know, American history, but what our nation did after those days, you know, some of you don't are unfortunately not old enough to remember this, which is unfortunate, not for you, but for me, because I'm, we're old, but uh, our nation came together to pray, you know, our nation looked at God, and uh, of course, some people judged us for that, where was God in the tragedy, but it there was a spiritual awakening that happened after 9-11 that I haven't seen again since, for sure. And that tragedy, I, I, you know, I, th- I, th- I think brought us together. And I, you know, maybe there were people saved. Maybe, maybe many more thousands were saved than perished that day. But that's a great why moment for sure. God, why, why did that happen? Why does that continue to happen? Habakkuk says this in 2, 3, and 4. Actually, this is God speaking to him. The vision still awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not die. If it seems slow, wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. How many of you love it when God says, wait for it? We are not a people who like to wait. And that's a cultural thing for sure. Uh, But in general, human beings don't like to wait. But Western culture, we really don't like to wait. I'll tell you, one of the biggest cultural shocks I had as I moved to Germany was this idea that when you're standing in the line at the grocery store and a new line opens up, that that old lady that's six people deep will move faster than she's ever moved, by the way, to be the first person in a new line, even though she's not next, right? <laughs> this frustrates Americans, right? This frustrates us because we're like, we're, wait a minute, I'm next. I'm next. And you know how to get another lane to open up at the grocery store? This is just a sub, little subplot here. Just start putting your stuff on the conveyor. As soon as you put your stuff on the conveyor, new line opens up. That's just how you do it. It's just like, you know, how do you get it to rain? You wash your car, right? It's the same thing. We don't like waiting, and Germans don't like waiting either. This is something that we definitely share, waiting. But sometimes God says, wait. But we're all about that immediate, 
quick gratification. We need it right now. God says, wait for it. I am doing something. Remember what he said earlier. I am doing something that you wouldn't even believe. And how many of you know the wait is usually worth it? It's usually worth it. I'd say it's always worth it when it comes to God, but it's definitely worth it when it comes to things in our own lives as well, right? It's always worth waiting for that sale, right? I have so many stories about sales, but yeah. With my father-in-law, oh, my father-in-law in sales, oh, my lands. Skip down with me to Habakkuk 3, 17 and 19. One of the greatest, most poetic things in the Old Testament, statements in the Old Testament. Habakkuk, after all this, says this. Though the fig tree should not blossom or fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me to tread upon high places. Church, can you say with Habakkuk, no matter what I am facing, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me to tread on the high places. Now, when you're in a difficult situation, this is a very difficult thing to echo. But I don't believe that this is to be echoed in difficult situations as much as it is when things are going well. Church, we must determine in our times of blessing that even if God would strip all of it away, he is still the God of our salvation. He is still the rock in which we put our trust. And we have to decide that before trouble comes. Because when trouble comes, all we are is consumed by trouble. Has anybody ever been in a situation where you are so distraught, you are fine, you can't even pray? You are so consumed, the moment you kneel down at your bed or in your place of prayer and you close your eyes, all you see are the problems that surround you. And church, I want to tell you, that's why we have one another. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have prayer time at the, in the middle of, we never miss that. Because there are times in your life where you can't even pray. The moment you get on your knees, you're just overwhelmed by worry and fret and you can't even find the words. But people who are removed from the situation can pray with you. And they can pray with faith that will astound you. Church, we, that's, community is just so much part of being a Christian. I, you, I, being part, saying you're a Christian and hating the church is just an oxymoron. It's an absolute oxymoron. And I am very skeptical, skeptical of any person who identifies as Christian but never goes to church. Because you cannot love one another. You, can, you, you know, love one another. You cannot do the one another's of the Bible unless you're in church, right? Love one another, serve one another, uh, desire one, uh, the other's good over yourself. You can't do those things if you're absent from the body of Christ. But here, we have these things. And when you're facing circumstances that are beyond your grasp and you can't even find the words to pray, come to church. Have somebody pray with you. Have somebody pray with you. God is patient, and he calls us to be patient. Wait for it. And it's kind of become a, a meme, right? Wait for it, right? Nick Ripkin, in his book, he t- like I said, he talks about these horrible circumstances, and he talks a lot about persecution. But it's these times of persecution and justice where our faith really grows. You're going through what seems like hell on earth right now, but when you come through this on the other side, your faith will be stronger because of it. 
That's why at the end of Habakkuk, he is saying these things. He is stronger as a result of this conversation with God, this understanding with God. And you'll get to the place where you can say with the psalmist, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. For what can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. What can man really do to you? What can be stripped from you? What can be taken from you? What can you lose that cannot be restored? Nothing. Nothing of importance, anyway. In one of the last chapters of his book, Ripken writes this, Before we can grasp the full meaning of the resurrection, we first have to witness or experience crucifixion. Listen to that for a moment. Before we can grasp the full meaning of the resurrection, we first have to witness or experience crucifixion. If we spend our lives so afraid of suffering, so adverse to sacrifice, that we avoid even the risk of persecution or crucifixion, then we may never discover the true wonder, joy, and power of resurrection faith. Ironically, avoiding suffering could be the very thing that prevents us from partnering more deeply with the risen Christ. (laughs) Wow. Don't read this book if you're not expecting your tail to be kicked, like about your faith, right? Like this book will put you on your face before God. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Again, I highly recommend it. But this idea that we live our whole lives avoiding suffering, but if we would embrace the idea that it's through suffering that our faith grows and our oneness with God grows. Look at some of what Peter says. But rejoice in so much as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice in suffering? That is so antithetical to everything we live our lives for. Rejoice in suffering. See, there's a theology that surrounds us. It's the theology of suffering. That it is perhaps not God's will that you live a prosperity gospel. More money, more health, so on and so forth. Actually, maybe you could start gauging your, how effective you are spiritually by how many attacks the enemy is throwing at you, right? I mean, because the enemy doesn't care if you're not doing anything, right? Right? You don't care. Like, you ever play football before? There's always that, like, one receiver or that one person that you don't even care about because they can't catch nothing, right? So your defense doesn't key on that. Your defense keys on the person who can get 100 yards running in the game, Right? If you're playing football, that's what you do. That's what our enemy does as well. If you're not doing anything for the kingdom, yeah, maybe you're not experiencing any attack. But if you're living for God and you're experiencing attack, that is validation, right? God is doing something through you, enough where the enemy has taken notice. Not a lot of amens there, but it is nonetheless true. Though I'm sure that we do all we can to avoid suffering, those of you who have come through suffering, those of us who have experienced suffering and come through on the other side can testify about what that has done for our faith. And maybe it's not even your suffering. I, I mean, you know, with, when, when we were visiting Celia in the hospital, she was going through it, but my faith was built up too, you know, when I saw Leonora. And when I've prayed for other people who have experienced miraculous things, you know, it, it builds the faith of the church. It, it builds us up. We mourn and we weep with those who mourn and weep, but we rejoice with those who rejoice. Amen. Amen. 
We may not understand the why, but that doesn't make God any less Lord and King. Thank you for listening to the SMCC Sermon Podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net.